0: This is the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. Um, The topic that I want to talk about today is polypharmacy of the elderly patient. We recently had a patient on our service (coughs) who got admitted to the intensive care unit and as we were going through her medication list we were all very much stunned by just almost, almost two dozen medications that she was on and during the course of the hospitalization as we tried to weaned down some of these medicines in consultation with our general internists and our various medical specialties, the patient became very anxious uh, about being on less than her two dozen medications. and Polypharmacy is really defined as giving somebody more than four medications is actually a very dangerous but a reasonably common practice, particularly in the United States. I remember my first day of pharmacology Having the chairman of pharmacology come in uh, in medical school and tell us that there were no such things as good medicines. And, and this was reasonably alarming for a medical student who is now going to spend the next year studying pharmacology. And the uh, pharmacologist went on to describe the fact that medications have their desired effects for the treatment of a particular illness be it treatment, an antibiotic for eradication of an infection or an analgesic for the relief of pain and on the other side they had their adverse effects and all medications had adverse effects and in each patient and in each medication you have to evaluate do the benefits of that medication outweigh the adverse effects And as we accumulate more and more medications, we clearly accumulate our adverse effects. And this brings us to the topic today of polypharmacy in the elderly patient. We're all aware of seeing, certainly in the United States, the, the surprising numbers of elderly patients that are going to be in the next 10 or 15 years as it certainly makes up a large portion of the United States. And older patients, as we are aware, have a lot of chronic medical problems that they bring with them to the intensive care unit. Be it chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, vascular disease, heart disease, or diabetes. We've already said that the term polypharmacy is really defined as a patient who receives um, many medications, and, and typically this is described as more than four medications. Uh, and, and in the elderly patient, this is certainly the rule rather than the exception. Kaufman and colleagues did a study here in the United States that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2002. And it showed that 90% of adults of over the age of 65 uh, were using at least one medication a week, whether it was prescribed or non-prescribed. 44% of men and 50% of women over the age of 65 used 5 or more medications a week, whereas 12% of both men and women used 10 or more medications within a week therefore the, the likelihood of the prevalence of polypharmacy increases with the age of, of the adult. And this has become a problem. A cohort study published in the European Journal of Clinical Pharmacology in 2006 it's uh, volume 62 pages 151 to 158 compared uh, adult medication use in 1998 to 2003 and found the prevalence of patients using five or more medications increased from 54% in uh, 1998 to 67% in 2003. Similarly, patients using 10 or more medications increased from 19% in 1998 to 28% in 2003. 28% of patients, uh, elderly patients, were using 10 or more medications. Now we're talking about this, discussion, this topic today because we see patients admitted to the intensive care unit all the time with a page full of medications. And is it really a problem? Well several investigations have shown and these investigations by Hanlon and colleagues in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society, Beard uh, in uh, Drug Aging, and Hole and colleagues in Annals of Emergency Medicine in uh, 19, uh, I'm sorry, in 2001 demonstrated that ten percent of emergency department visits uh... one out of ten and up to ten to seventeen percent of hospital admissions are due to adverse drug um, um, uh... adverse drug events now the medications that are typically uh, implicated in these adverse drug events, are the medications that would seem to make sense to anybody who understands physiology or medicine, and those include the cardiovascular drugs, antibiotics, diuretics, anticoagulants, hypoglycemic agents, steroids, opiates, anticholinergics, benzodiazepines, uh, and, and non-steroidals, just to name a few. And when you think about the what those medications do, that would seem to make sense that they were the medicines most commonly implicated in the adverse drug events, and by far, they're the medications most commonly used. Risk factors for drug-drug interactions include obviously polypharmacy, uh, increased number of physicians treating the patient. And this is in large part due to a lack of really having a uh, uniform uh, medical record. A patient may go to their internist in one practice, and then their gastroenterologist in another practice, and their cardiologist in another practice, and there's really not good communication back and forth between those uh, practitioners as well as uh, problems, uh, medications that can result in uh, increased risk for drug-drug interactions if the patient's taking medications that may cause hypotension sedation or any kind of anticholinergic effect, particularly when the various medications are added. The risk for drug-drug interactions increases with the number of medications used. Uh, Therefore 13 percent of patients taking two medications will have a risk of developing drug-drug interactions. So 13 percent for two medications. Now if you're playing Russian Roulette, the odds of 1 at 6 are roughly 16%, so about 13% with 2 medications. If you increase that to 6 medications, the likelihood of a drug-drug interaction now approaches 82%. And this was outlined by Goldberg and colleagues in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine back in 1996. Other drugs that may uh, result in problems are, and this is reasonably obvious, are drugs with narrow therapeutic indices. These would include drugs such as digoxin, calcium channel blockers, your antiarrhythmic drugs, oral hypoglycemic agents, uh, your cyclic antidepressants, drugs such as uh, warfarin, salicylates, dilantin, and theophylline. These drug-drug interactions are, are really problematic when the older patient comes to seek emergency care and perhaps end up in our intensive care unit. And The reason for this is reasonably obvious is that the higher number of concurrent medications will increase the risk of potential adverse drug interactions when we have to provide new medications to treat their new, uh, newly diagnosed cardiac arrhythmia or the pneumonia or whatever it is they present to the emergency department and subsequently the intensive care unit with. Why are elderly patients more predisposed to the adverse uh, drug events? Well, the most obvious is that frequently elderly patients are on more medications because of their chronic illnesses, and it clearly increases the statistical likelihood that they're going to have an ADE. But also there's alterations in the pharmacokinetics of the elderly. We're aware that as we get older, our cardiovascular, our pulmonary, our renal, and hepatic functions all change and, and perhaps become less efficient. Age-related changes in drug absorption and distribution affect the potential for harm associated with polypharmacy. For example, use of drugs that will slow the GI tract, drugs such as antihistamines or narcotic opiates, uh, alter the absorption of other drugs. Uh, Alterations in the fat to lean body mass ratio lead to higher blood levels of drugs such as morphine or lithium, or uh, levodopa or digoxin. And also, there's decreases in uh, serum albumin levels and therefore there's decreased protein binding drugs such as the ureas or the anticoagulants uh... and this will increase or, or potentiate the effects of the anticoagulants or the sulfonyureas. We again remember from medical school the the idea of the uh, um, cytochrome p450 system and the cytochrome p450 system changes certainly with age and as we take various medications uh, those medications are able to interact or slow or potentiate the effects of various elements of the cytochrome P450 system. There are various enzymes uh, involved with the cytochrome P450 system and those enzymes that are most commonly involved with the drug interactions include the enzymes 3,4A 2D6 1A2 and C29. It's hard because this is a spoken media but there are four Um, uh, enzymes of the P450 system that are frequently involved with drug interactions. Let's look at one of those enzyme systems of of the P450 system, the 3,4a system, or the 3,4a enzyme. Inhibitors of the 3,4a enzyme include drugs such as Cipro, Norfloxin, Ketoconazole, and Erythromycin. So. Uh, again, those fluoroquinolones, uh, antifungal, and, and uh, antibiotics. So let's go to that. Cipro, norfloxacin, ketoconazole, and erythromycin inhibit the 34A enzyme of the P450 system. Now, what drugs are metabolized by the 34, excuse me, the 3A4 system? Well, amitriptyline, uh, benzodiazepines, codeine, hydrocodone, propoxyphene, amiodarone, um, quinidine, metoprolol, propranolol and nifedipine, just to name some. So let's put this into a clinical scenario. If we gave uh, an antibiotic such as a Cipro, or such as a Norfloxacin, uh, or erythromycin, or we put somebody on Ketoconazole, that is going to decrease 3A4. And if the patient is getting uh, sedatives or narcotics, we can see an increase effect of those sedatives or narcotics because of the concomitant use of the antibiotics. We give uh, somebody has a urinary tract infection, we give them Cipro. That's going to decrease um, the action of the 3A4 element of the P450 system and therefore drugs such as benzodiazepines like a Valium or an Ativan or a Versed are going to be more slowly metabolized or codeine or hydrocodone based analgesics um, or even the use of their beta blockers may become more prolonged such as metoprolol or propranolol you wouldn't think that treating something like a urinary tract infection would uh, perhaps complicate the way you take care of somebody's acute postoperative pain or uh, protection of their heart rate with use of their beta blocker. Other problems include uh, age-related changes in renal function and drug elimination can also cause potential harm to the patient. Lower glomerular filtration rates, loss of tubular function, and decreased resorptive capacity um, uh, will develop as the patient gets older. And drugs such as aspirin, digoxin, and lithium can accumulate to rapidly to rather toxic levels as a result orations of this decrease in renal function with age. Another potential problem with polypharmacy is the drug-associated prolonged QT syndrome. And this is a topic that we mentioned in our last podcast. We're not going to go into much detail here other than hit on some of the highlights. This is quoted from an article by Strauss and colleagues in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology in 2006, volume 47, pages 362 to 367. It was a retrospective cohort study of 4.8 million patients. 4.8 million patients and these 4.8 million patients received over 4.4 million prescriptions for drugs that basically are capable of prolonging QT syndrome or prolonging the patient's QT interval. Of these 4.8 million patients, 9.4% were concomitantly prescribed another medicine that either prolonged the QT itself or inhibited the metabolism of the QT-prolonging medication. Twenty-two percent of the patients prescribed QT-prolonging medications were 65 years of age or older. Uh, I misspoke earlier that the reference for this is Curtis and colleagues, American Journal of Medicine, 2003. Now, this is now the following part is from the Strauss article, In that patients with prolongation of the QT interval at risk for developing ventricular arrhythmias, particularly torsades. And that prolongation of the QT syndrome has been shown to be associated with increased risk of sudden cardiac death in the elderly population. Sorry about that mix up there with the uh, references. And again, I would refer you back to uh, our uh, podcast, uh, our last one, on uh, prolonged QT interval. Um, just be very mindful of that this is a problem be mindful of what a prolonged QT interval is there is a website there are several of them one happens to be www.qtdrugs.org or if you do a google search you'll find several credible websites that will make you aware of some of the medications that will cause prolonged QT um, uh, syndrome another medication that creates a lot of um, um, heartburn uh, to those patients uh, who work in intensive care units and see patients come in with say ten or eleven medicines is the uh, use of uh, warfarin or coumadin, and um, um, coumadin is um, an oral anticoagulant. And our elderly patients uh, are increased sensitive to uh, warfarin or coumadin use because of reduced drug clearance. They have uh, elderly patients have lower body weight. They also have lower dietary uh, vitamin K intake. Also, um, many elderly patients are increased fall risks because of neuropathies, uh, uh, vertigo, dizziness, arthritis, and so forth. And then, and then by being on Coumadin, there it increased risk of fall. Uh, as a trauma surgeon, seeing elderly patients come in from motor vehicle crashes, uh, having been on Coumadin, uh, again, it's a source of great anxiety for us because you'll see patients who have rather significant traumatic brain injuries. They'll have um, excessive soft tissue hematomas associated with uh, femur fractures and so uh, we find um, a tremendous number of complications associated with Coumadin use in the elderly but today's topic we're trying to focus on the issues of polypharmacy the other issues while taking Coumadin um, um, for the elderly patients, is that adult patients with have a decline in cognitive function, and this can result in a lack of awareness of the drug interactions and food restrictions, or even missed or double doses. So, you know there are uh, certain dietary restrictions taking Coumadin. I was on couvidin for six months uh, following a uh, surgical complication years ago. And I'll tell you that the dietary restrictions—they don't seem like a lot when you read them in a book until you try to live it. The other issue is, did I take my morning dose or not? And, and patients may decide to take a, a double dose when uh, they forgot they took their their dose earlier that morning. This may seem hard to believe, but you know, when I make a cup of coffee, sometimes I forget if I added my Splenda to it or not sometimes make an overly sweet cup of coffee as I add my second dose of Coumadin or as my second dose of Splenda and certainly you can see where an elderly patient would add a second dose of Coumadin if they forgot how does Coumadin or um, Warfarin work well you remember it works with vitamin K metabolism and the uh, $64,000 question uh, is it inhibits vitamin K epoxide reductase inhibits vitamin K epoxide reductase that's the the, uh, geek factor of the day and uh, by inhibiting vitamin K epoxide reductase it uh, diminishes the vitami- available vitamin K stores and inhibits the synthesis of vitamin K dependent clotting factors. Well, what are the vitamin K dependent clotting factors? Again, um, there are four of them and uh, we all remember this from physiology or medical school and they are uh, factor 2 which is Prothombin, factor 7, factor 9 and factor uh, 10. Uh, Warfarin is completely absorbed from the GI tract after oral administration and it reaches peak concentration within four hours. Um, Greater than 99% of circulating warfarin is bound to plasma proteins, namely albumin. The mean elimination half-life of the parent compound is about 40 hours. and metabolism of warfarin is primarily through the cytochrome P450 system. Now there are, uh, as we said earlier, there are four major subtypes uh, or four major enzymes of the cytochrome P450 system uh, and those include, let me go back here and try to be as accurate as I possibly can uh, these include 3A4, 2D6, 1A2 and C29 well in the case of um, warfarin the cytochrome P450 system that's used is uh, the C29. Now, here's another little valuable fact that um, grapefruit juice does not significantly interact with uh, warfarin therapy because grapefruit um, interacts, inhibits the cytochrome P- P450 enzyme 3A4 and not C29. And C29 is the cytochrome P450 enzyme that is used to metabolize warfarin is that a geek fact or not? uh... antibiotic therapy may cause alterations in the INR because of potential elimination of vitamin K producing gut bacteria uh... we think that we see this a lot when we're seeing patients come in um, with uh, being treated for a, a community-acquired pneumonia and also on Coumadin it may also be the fact that they're just not on a good regimen um, what to do if a patient is super therapeutic or their INR is high, the American College of Chest Physicians uh... develop a consensus guideline. Uh, it's the seventh uh, American College of Chest Physicians conference on antithrombotic and thrombolytic therapy, uh, and they establish guidelines of what to do. And typically, we know that if somebody has too much coumadin, we treat that with vitamin K. Well, how do we do that? Um, typically, you can give vitamin K orally, IV, or sub Q. Uh, your pharmacist will tell you that they don't like us to give it IV because of the increased risks of anaphylaxis. Subcutaneous uh, is not really uh, been the best uh, because of the erratic absorption of subcutaneous um, vitamin K. My patients are burn patients, and typically giving them subcutaneous medications is, is sometimes out of the question because they don't have any subcutaneous tissue. People are disinclined to give it orally, but there was an article by Finn and colleagues um, in the Annals of Internal Medicine um, uh, 1993 uh, that showed that orally administered vitamin K lowered the INR more rapidly than IV or subcutaneous routes in asymptomatic patients because of a more predictable uh, pharmacokinetic. The primary thing that we worry about uh, with uh, um, supertherapeutic levels of uh, uh, warfarin therapy is bleeding and they can occur anywhere in the body from mild to life-threatening but the most common site of bleeding with Coumadin or Warfarin therapy is the uh, GI tract. The last uh, class of medications that I want to talk about are the sedative medications, which include not only just the benzodiazepines but also uh, the analgesics. And uh, Clearly elderly patients are more susceptible to the sedative effects of of these medications. Now, Patients may come into the hospital and and be on multiple medications uh, for analgesia because of conditions such as osteoarthritis or chronic back pain. They may have uh, issues of depression or insomnia and that may be treated concurrently on medication as it results in uh, sedation. Drugs such as opiates, benzodiazepines, antidepressants, antipsychotics, and barbiturates all have CNS depressant effects and certainly could be additive when given in combination with each other or drugs that have similar effects. Some of the obvious uh, effects of these medications are in cognitive impairment, including delirium and dementia. Delirium, obviously, a very hot topic uh, now in, in, in uh, uh, treatment of critical illness. And again, a lot of these patients may be coming in a baseline of polypharmacy medications that as we simply just put them over the edge or add an additional one or two medication uh, medications, we can be certainly impairing their cognitive ability and contributing to the delirium. Studies looking at older hospitalized patients with sedative drugs have been reported that the sedative drugs are often the cause of cognitive impairment, up to about 30% of the cases. Obviously, the uh, opiates are well known to cause cognitive impairment, but also long-acting benzodiazepines, tricyclic antidepressants, and anticonvulsants are, uh, are common, and um, uh, particularly in the treatment of chronic pain, and uh, they are known to exacerbate uh, some issues of dementia. Therefore it's certainly patients who are elderly have acute pain as well as chronic pain but due to these considerations when you need to treat it start starting with the sedative medications start with low doses and titrate up very slowly being mindful that the pharmacokinetics of the elderly patient is certainly slow due to alterations in the hepatic function or the renal function. Opioids are certainly a necessary of treatment of pain particularly in my line of work as a burn surgeon and the thing everybody freaked out about is I don't want to be an addict which is one of the most ridiculous things. Um, The risk of addiction is less than 0.1 percent when used in non-substance abusers to treat pain. That's about one patient in a thousand will develop some sort of dependence or addiction. Uh, What we'll often tell patients is that a, a diabetic patient is certainly Uh, Dependent on their insulin. A heart patient is dependent on their beta blocker, but you would never say a diabetic is addicted to their insulin. Uh, And certainly, patients who have chronic pain or chronic pain syndromes may be dependent on their narcotics, but that doesn't necessarily make them an addict. There are psychosocial definitions that go into uh, what defines an addiction other um, uh, adverse uh, drug ev- uh, events that can occur with patients uh, particularly the elderly who are on narcotic analgesics include constipation urinary detention sedation respiratory depression and therefore we need to be mindful of these and, and, and titrate the drugs up very closely and look and ask frequently uh... for the development uh, of these complications the other thing you need to be careful of particularly with the elderly patients if you're using some of the combination agents that have um, you know a Um, combination preparation containing like an aspirin or acetaminophen is the awareness of what that second ingredient is and are you leading to toxic effects which could result in either renal uh, 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 problems or um, Tylenol toxicity, particularly if the patient is taking a a narcotic uh, acetaminophen combination and then taking additional over-the-counter Tylenol. Certain opiates um, have a significant high risk in older patients and need to be used in great caution or just outly avoided. Propoxifene is a synthetic opiate with analgesic potency similar to acetaminophen or aspirin alone but drug accumulation will lead to neurotoxicity which could result in ataxia and dizziness. Tramadol is another synthetic agent. It has a mu opiate receptor agonist. Properties combined with inhibition of norepinephrine and serotonin reuptake, and therefore seizures are a potential complication with the use of tramadol. Uh, and caution again should be exercised in patients who have a history of seizure disorder or those taking other drugs that lower seizure thresholds. A, sur- a third synthetic opiate, which has analgesic potency similar to that, or of morphine is uh, methadone. Uh, we like methadone and use a lot of methadone in burn patients. It um, has a long half-life, about 23 hours, uh, therefore titration is difficult. And adverse events will, uh, uh, when experienced, will be prolonged. And it's for this reason that we will initiate methadone therapy while the patient is an inpatient, um, and we are able to watch the patient for prolonged adverse events. Mepiridine or Demerol is another synthetic opiate. It's um, a drug that I don't see commonly used much in our institution but I do see patients coming in from uh, uh, other emergency departments um, or elsewhere having uh, a dose of Demerol or multiple doses of Demerol or Mepiridine. It's metabolized um, and as it's metabolized its metabolite is neurotoxic and that metabolite metabolite is uh, uh, norm particularly in cases with renal insufficiency, accumulation of this normapyridine can precipitate seizures. So, again, people are using it as a single dose um, agent, uh, as a single time, not too much of a problem, but if it's being used repetitively uh, for people in, in uh, multiple doses for acute or chronic pain, uh, you will develop this uh, metabolite normopyridine, which can result in seizures. Uh, and the use of Demerol or meperidine has been uh, linked to increased risk of falls and sedation when compared to other uh, uh, opiate agents. Benzodiazepines are used to cause uh, sedation, um, amnesia, uh, and anxiolysis. Uh, also, t- uh, people who are coming in uh, um, from the uh, outpatient setting may be taking it for insomnia or anxiety or muscle spasms. Um, And long acting benzodiazepines should certainly be avoided uh, in elderly patients. The half life can extend for several days uh, in the elderly patient, up to a week in some, and therefore uh, increase complications. Um, That concludes this uh, podcast on polypharmacy in the geriatric patient. I I just wanted to kind of bring out some salient features that we see uh, often in patients who come in with these very long medication lists of um, ten or fifteen medications it would seem like it was a rarity but particularly in the elderly it's more of a common occurrence and as you're going through these medication lists what are some of the things you need to be thinking about clearly the first thing that i would be thinking about is uh... what's the number for the pharmacy so i could talk to a pharma d uh... and go over these medication lists as you add new medications and a patient is already on ten or fifteen medications as you go on and add each new medication to treat the reason why the patients in the intensive care unit unit. Again, I would do this in consultation at least on a daily if not more frequent basis with your pharmacologist to make sure that you're not adding fuel to a fire. Some of the symptoms that patients are presenting to the hospital or into the intensive care unit are complications from having this long list of medications. Now I'm a surgeon, I'm a surgical intensivist, but the other thing that we have to be mindful of is that if a patient comes in with a ten item problem list and a fifteen uh... list uh, fifteen drug list of medications they're not going to be in my intensive care unit or my burn unit forever they are going to eventually go back under the care of their primary care physician and i think again you need to have uh... uh communication with the primary care physician in the community as to what the patient's going to go home with and uh... how they're going to be managed on some of those chronic medications or I, I certainly wouldn't be changing uh... a lot of the chronic medication or chronic condition medications, uh, and then send the patient out with any without any coverage. Uh, for those chronic conditions, without consultation with a uh, general internist or the patient's primary, or preferably the patient's primary care physician. That concludes this podcast for surgery ICU rounds. Uh, today is uh, Sunday, March the twenty-third. It is Easter Sunday. Um, the home website is uh, www.burndoc.com or burndoc.net. This podcast can be found on iTunes. Uh, just search on ICU rounds or the homepage for the podcast is www. IcyRounds.com. My name's Jeff Guy. Have a great day.